Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Kathy Benjamin, historian and author of Lady Undertakers of Old Texas, published just last month by the History Press. Thanks so much for listening. Let's dive back in. Well, welcome back to Crime Capsule. Kathy, we're delighted to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. So having taken the bird's eye view of the graveyard last week, this week we are going to perch on a couple of individual headstones. How does that sound? That sounds great. (laughs) Okay. All of my metaphors during spooky season revolve around... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one one theme and one theme only. Hey, so. It's it it works. All right. So Anna Mary Beatham. She is in a way almost like the heroine of your story. She's at the very least one of your protagonists. And she's a fascinating individual. She was a pioneer. She was an entrepreneur. She was an innovator. And I mean, this is maybe the understatement of the century. She was a shrewd businesswoman. I mean, she knew what was up. So so tell us a little bit about Anna Mary. Yeah. So Anna Mary um, is, is, living in Texas with her husband and she gives birth to a child that sadly dies. She pretty quickly has another child which lives, but she almost dies and she is just getting sicker and sicker. And what a lot of people did at that time was they thought, Oh, we'll go to a desert climate. It was very common with like tubercular patients, things like that. We'll go to a drier desert climate and somehow that will just make us better. So she and her husband, um, leave kind of East Texas and they start moving towards West Texas, but they stop to camp because it was a camp. It was not a town in those days. We're talking about the early 1880s and she and her husband stop in Mineral Wells, which is uh, a little bit to the West of Dallas, Fort Worth area and Mineral Wells, the wells and the minerals part, they have springs there. They still do. And they were very famous already at that time. She, while they were camping there for a couple of weeks, starts feeling a bit better, putting on some weight. And they're like, oh, it, you know, like so many others who went, it's down to the spring water. What, for whatever reason that she got better, she got better there. And they decided to stay. Um, but <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> she got better well, because of these famous springs that are supposed to make you better. A lot of people who would come to Mineral Wells to try and get better did not get better. So you have a population of people where the lucky ones survive and the the unlucky ones who are most of them die. This is, again, basically a camp at this point. There is no undertaker. And so she becomes an She gets better and she's like, we're going to stay and I'm going to become an undertaker. And she not only starts an undertaking business, but she starts it under her own name, her initials, but her initials are different than her husband's. Her husband was involved with like the bathhouses and hotels and things like that. She ran the undertaking business um, and it was called uh, A.M. Beatham. It was her. So that is you know, just groundbreaking, not only because she was one of the first, but she was definitely, I I cannot find any example 
uh, and believe me, I looked, of a woman who started an undertaking business earlier than that in Texas. Um, so this is about 1881-1882, um, when she's starting her own her own business in what was then the frontier and, you know, running it herself and, and being part of this kind of brand new area of business that is undertaking as a money-making operation. You know, as they say, uh, death is a growth sector <laughs> uh, in, in different ways, and you got to go where the clientele uh, is at. So we cannot underestimate her, her business savvy in the slightest. How did you find Anna Mary? How did you find Mrs. Beetham as you're doing your research? It's the same way I found everybody else. No, I found her pretty early on. She, you know, I, I can't call her famous or anything, but because she did things under her own name, she's much easier to find because even women uh, into the 20th century are much more likely to be almost a silent partner with their husband or with a sibling or their father. So the fact that she was full on, here are my initials, here's my name, I'm going to be in the paper, both in advertising and in stories, write-ups, articles, under my own name. She was one of the first ones that that came up for me. Um, and then she just, I was able to find a photo of her, and it just kind of went from there. And then her son, uh, Robert, uh, became hugely involved in uh, the Texas uh, undertakers and then funeral directors and embalmers association. So her son went on to be kind of very famous and important in that sector. And then all of his stuff you can trace back to her. So the name, even if uh, in later decades, it wasn't her name, it was his name. The name is very big among any funeral information that you try and find in Texas. Last week, you were telling us a little bit about the sort of roots to professionalization and the societies that were emerging, emphasis on emerging at the turn of the last century um, in, in old Texas. Uh, who trained Anna Mary and where did she get her training and what did it look like? Well, she definitely did not have any sort of um, official professional training in the 1880s, the nearest, uh, what you call like school of embalming was in Chicago and New York. Those, those were where you went at that period. And she did not go to those places, which means she did not. Eventually, there's one in Dallas, and you, you eventually can get a degree without leaving Texas. But at this period, absolutely not. So she would have, I don't know, I don't have any evidence of like, if she learned it from her mother, if she had a father or anyone involved in it, it appears to be an idea that she just plucked out of thin air. Um, and went, I'm going to do this. And at the time, um, she, I'm not sure when she started exactly offering embalming. It may not have been in those first few years, but when she did eventually start doing it, it was still the period, say the 18, late 1880s, 1890s, well before 1903, when you had to pass a test in order to be an embalmer. So she was able from the beginning, if she wanted to, to practice embalming and call herself an embalmer with no actual education, no training. So yeah, I, a lack of evidence um, is definitely there, but it appears that it just was an idea that came to her. She was in a place that needed an undertaker and she decided that was, that was her job. She was going to do it. 
Do you think that there is any possibility, just based on what you've read about the place and the time, uh, being so close to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, do you think that she might have, say, undertaken an apprenticeship with a mortician, with an undertaker in that uh, in that growing metropolis at the time? It's definitely. I would. I wouldn't say it's not. It's not impossible. Um, there's no evidence for it. So we would just be spitballing here. I would base it on the fact that, um, she wasn't really expected to like, again, to us, it seems bizarre, but she absolutely could just one day decide she's an undertaker and call herself an embalmer and do it. And she wasn't breaking any laws. She wasn't, no one was going to come test her. Um, but also she had young kids at this point. And so when you're talking about, um, you know, even even going from Mineral Wells to Dallas, if you're talking about having two toddlers running around, which she did at this point, um, back then she would have been expected to take care of them. And because she wasn't uh, around her people, so to speak, she was in a new place, we know she wouldn't have had extended family to help with that. So I think just a matter of um, the reality of being a mom would have made it very difficult. What are some of the other kinds of sources that we have for her and for her family? You mentioned that you obtained some information through her son, but what kind of primary documents do we have associated with Anna Mary? We have a very rare example of that. Uh, a lot of you get a lot of information from the advertisements at the time, even just things you have to infer or things that change in the ads over time. For example, when she eventually does bring her son on. Um, her name is still number one and it's her at Beetham and son, you know, like he doesn't get to take over. Um, we have just even things that just tell you about their life in the, in the old days when they were trying to fill up newspapers, they would even talk about, you know, oh, so-and-so had a bridge party. And those are the kind of things that, uh, didn't get included in my book in the end, but that kind of fill out this person's life. And you can see, oh, okay, so she traveled this summer. So who was taking care of her uh, job when she was away that summer? And okay, uh, here's here's the record of birth for a child that didn't live. So we know she was pregnant for the nine months before that. All those kind of things you you have to add together to get a picture of her life and what she could have been doing and when. And you can definitely see um, the point where she kind of steps back um, from her job and kind of has, she has like a teenage daughter to get married off, things like that. You see where things become more her son and less her. But in those early decades specifically, you just have to pick at those little tiny, little tiny things to get a view of this woman and what she was doing in her job because, you know you don't expect a rural lady undertaker in the 1880s to be leaving a huge record behind of who she was and what she was doing. Yeah, you tend to get a, a sense of who has paper trails and who doesn't pretty quickly And when you're doing this kind of research. It's always nice to find someone who has at least a semblance of a trail that you can follow and, and uh, piece it together. Now, you have this interesting claim, um, as you describe her, it's going to take a second to unpack, but I think it's important that we do so because you're you're very careful about your nominations here, okay? Um, you write that she was the first to own and manage her company under her own name 
in the state of Texas. And then you write immediately afterwards, <laughs> I think I got that right, please correct me if I didn't, but reason I accentuate it is you write that it is extremely important to qualify each of those conditional phrases and clauses because at every stage of the game in this period of the growing funerary industry in Texas, somebody is going to tweak one of those little clauses, whether it's first to own or first to manage or first to manage under someone's name or their own name or uh, you know in this region or from that other region. Like everybody wants a little piece of the of the firstness pie, right? And you get all of these kind of competing lady undertakers or male undertakers in some cases, but you're you're writing about the ladies here, who who are all angling, they're all posturing, you know, like they're all kind of like you see what I'm getting at. You know, they're, they're, everybody wants some little badge of distinctiveness, some little gold star for being first at something, even if it is literally like, I'm the only angel on the head of this pen. But I want a star for that. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> it, it was one of the things I did not expect uh, going into this. Oh, and I should say, just to add to all those things you said, specifically woman. So she wasn't the first yeah, yeah, man yeah, yeah, to yeah. own it. Yeah, yeah. Or person. She was the first woman to own it under her own name, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, what, because I would read, I would find a woman and I would read about her and you. it's usually in advertisements. You would read an ad and it'll say, you know, the only lady undertaker in the panhandle or the only lady undertaker in San Antonio or something like that, or the first one in Texas. And, you know, it was when I started reading, sometimes you get it in obituaries as well, because family stories, you know, change or whatever. So you'd have an obituary from 1950 and it'd be like, oh, she was the first licensed lady undertaker in Texas. And you go and I would go and look her up and learn that she didn't become an undertaker until 1920. And I'm like, well, I've got a hundred women that I've already researched (laughs) that were under. So that can't be true. So suddenly I realized that these superlatives, you can't believe any of them. You have to actually look into it. So it's one of the first things that I, that I go over in my book is that you know, if if there is a family story, if there is an ad, if there if you have some piece of evidence going, no, really, this person was first, or even in some cases, this person was second. <laughs> I have one example of that where a woman claims to be the second lady undertaker in Texas, and she genuinely didn't. Congrats! <laughs> didn't start until the in well into yeah. the 1900s, and I was just like, why would you claim to be second if you weren't? But again, that one comes from a. Um, from an obituary, so it may be one of those things that came down in families and things get things get changed and messed up a little bit. But yeah, so anytime I saw this, you know, the only one here, the first one here, whatever, you have to go back and check. And across the board, they tend to be either wrong or you can't prove them, or there are two people who who both claim to have that same uh first or only or whatever. Um yeah, but it is it is kind of that human thing of like, yeah, we want that we want that piece. We want to be able to say I was the first or I'm the only. The other I will say the other thing that I point out about it though is that in in many cases I don't I don't think in most cases they were setting out to lie. If you're going to say you're the only 
woman embalmer in San Antonio, for example, because we've talked about how San Antonio, for some reason, had like a million lady embalmers. Um, That's one thing, because you're going to know that's not true. You're going to know there are other lady embalmers there. But if you're in a town of 5,000 people in the middle of West Texas, it is very likely that you are the first woman undertaker that anyone in that town has ever heard of. So if you're going to advertise yourself as the first, you don't necessarily know that's wrong, especially before you have to be tested. It's just like, oh, I'm I'm the first one I've ever heard of. So guess what? I'm first. I think my absolute favorite of any of them in your book was, and I, I don't remember her name off the top of my head. It was just, it was such a small little detail, you know, like this, this one mention that you, that you gave and then moved right on. But I think my favorite was the lady who advertised herself as the first woman undertaker in Texas from Illinois. <laughs> yeah, it was, hold on, where'd she go? Uh, yeah, it was Harriet Creedler. Yeah, she lived in Chicago before moving to McAllen. And she claimed to be, quote, first licensed woman embalmer in Illinois. But she was claiming that while she lived in McAllen. Right. And so it's Thank like, you. well, no one no one in Texas knows. Sure. Like, I didn't even bother looking into it because I'm like, I'm not worried about what happened in Illinois. I'm worried about what happened in Texas. Before we move on f- from Miss Beatham, maybe one or two more questions. You know, you have described some of some of the sort of landscape of competition um, that is out there, you know, for for her. I guess I was just curious, based on your reading, you know, what what set her apart? You know, what would persuade a grieving family to visit her as opposed to any of her competitors, female or, or otherwise? You know, I mean, was there something unique about her practice? I don't know. I think in the beginning, um, she was the only one in, again, in what was very much a one horse town, if that. And then uh, a decade later, um, a woman and her husband come in and they start their own undertaking parlor. And that really does seem to be kind of the first competition that she has at all. So I think that first decade, it's really, uh, she's there. And then after that... Good way to build a clientele if you're the only one. (laughs) (laughs) You're the only one there. And then after that, um, because it's something that her son really promotes, it's you you have that decade on everybody else. You know, you have the, oh, we were founded in 1882. Like, we've been around longer. Um... And she, you, again, you see it in, in those little things about who's throwing what parties or who's going to what church and all these things that are reported in newspapers at the time. She was very involved in the community. Um, and the photo that we have of her, she looks like a very strong <laughs> individual. Uh, she's a bit, she's quite a bit older in the image we have. But I'm so glad you mentioned that photograph, yeah. <laughs> Kathy. I am so glad you mentioned that photograph because I was going to ask you about it. And um, this is one of those things where, you know, folks out there in podcast land, you know, y'all, y'all need to pick up a copy of this book for this photograph and for one other, but mostly for this photograph, because you've got this lady who, can we just have some real talk yeah. here, Kathy? Can we just, can we just like go straight up, like all cards on the table? She looks like a bruiser. She looks like she regularly engages in, you know, like bare knuckle boxing matches. And like, not only would she kill you, 
in a fight. Like I wouldn't pick a fight with her. She looked, first of all, she would kill you. Then she would embalm you. And lastly, she would charge you for the privilege of her embalming services. And, and she's so fierce, man. Wow. Yeah, and she, so the image that we have is on, if you do go get the book, it's on page 80. Um, the image that we have is uh, labeled uh, that it's a whole bunch of women and one man who I believe is a reverend um, sitting on someone's porch. And so you have a whole bunch of these kind of younger to middle-aged women. A couple of them are even smiling, which was less common in photos. Then you have some, they're holding young children. And then in the back, you have three older-ish women who are all dressed in black. And the most formidable by far is Anna Mary Beatham. She is the person that you see when you look at this photo with, you know, a dozen or more people in it. She's got a fabulous hat on. She's got a big old dress. And she, yeah. Yeah, I think your description is right on. She does look like she's about to punch the photographer, even though <laughs> she's kind of far away. She she cuts the profile of like Andre the Giant. I mean, it's it's she she dominates the image. <laughs> it's amazing. And this is so, from around you know. 1910, so we figure so if she's 30, she's in her early 70s. So yeah, she's in her 50s, early to mid 50s at this point. So she's not a young woman anymore, but she's not old, old, I say, as someone who turned 40 this year. <laughs> Happy birthday. So um, my, my other favorite photograph in your book is found on page 19, and it is of the exterior of her emporium. And I, I, I like the word emporium to describe what we're looking at here because, you know, it, it, yes, it's very old timey, you know, and it's, it looks like it's got sort of, you know, full of knickknacks in the way that modern day Cracker Barrels wish wish they were, you know, but, uh, you know, this is the real deal. And I just love the lettering on the awning because the lettering is like, you know, doodads, knickknacks, this and that, you know, saddles, livery, dry goods, blah, blah, blah. And it's all in like this sort of little, little lettering until you get to the very end of the awning. And in, in the largest type available, the largest like font size is what we would call it now, you know, like, like 600 point font on the top of the awning. It just goes, and Coffins. Coffins. <laughs> Coffins. Like that's the first word you see on the establishment. <laughs> it's great. I will I will pull you up slightly. It's not hers. It's uh Betty Lautner, who is the one that I mentioned a few minutes ago, the competition that came in uh, a okay. decade later. So same place. Uh also a woman undertaker, but it's Betty Lautner and her husband. But yeah, everything else you said, totally correct. And yeah, furniture, light. Running sewing machines, tiny letters, and coffins. Coffins. <laughs> yeah. I love coffins. coffins. Skip the furniture. <laughs> skip the saddles. Skip the dry goods. We're going straight to the good stuff. So well, and I like like sewing machines were like a a revolution at that point. Still, like they were important. It's like oh, sewing machines, tiny letters, coffins. This is what people need. Oh, yeah. That's 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 the good stuff. So part of your research turning. Away from Miss Beatham for a moment, although she won't let us turn us away, uh, turn ourselves away for very long. Uh, she still still does cast that shadow over the, you know, the whole of of our conversation here. Um, no, part of the joy of the research that that you've done is the stuff that turns up, right? The, again, back to our 
metaphor theme here, the skeletons in the closet, the bodies in the bog. You know, there's sort of this this element in your book of, you know, the the things that you've discovered that you didn't expect to find, but which just bring so much color and and kind of variety to to your account. And I wanted to ask you if we could do like a little lightning round of of fun little things. You have a number of subheadings as you work through your material. And I was quite quite taken with some of your subheadings. And I would just love to ask you to give us like the two-second version of, of, of a couple of these um, because they are such a joy. And, and this is a, a call to our listeners to make sure that, you know, when they pick up the book, um, spend some time in the detail here because the detail, the detail <laughs> is great. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. Okay, let's start off with lightning round, uh, you know, number one. Question number one is notable bodies, okay? Famous corpses. What was, what was your, your favorite famous corpse that you encountered in the course of your, in the corpse of your research? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Low-hanging fruit. You gotta forgive me. No apologies, no regrets. What you got? It's, it's fine. Um, well, I think, oh gosh, I mean, there's, there's three that are like properly fully notable. Um, unfortunately they are all men, which I do point out in my book means that the, the women, and this is something that we haven't kind of mentioned yet. Women, uh, undertakers, lady undertakers were advertised as dealing with the bodies of women and children. So when you have a man, unless it's specifically stated somewhere, you can assume that she probably wasn't the one embalming or dealing with that body. So unfortunately, all three of these are men. They probably weren't the ones specifically dealing with it. It was probably their husbands. Um, but so John uh, Wesley Hardin, who I guess is an El Paso kind of legend, and they are fighting to keep his remains there. I guess his family wanted his remains moved. Anyway, outlaw, folk hero, sounds like a complete psychopath from what I read about him. Like he was just a murdering crazy person, but he shows up in El Paso and, uh, 1894 and starts causing crazy mayhem, killing a lot of people. Supposedly he had a kill list with him and he starts just going through it because he's mad he was in jail. And then eventually he is, he's killed. Um, and, uh, Lady Undertaker, her husband was J.C. Ross. So she's Sarah Ross and her husband is J.C. Ross. We know J.C. Ross dealt with the body and took the photos that we have of his dead body. And we know that within a day or two, the photos of 
John Wesley Hardin's corpse were being sold on the streets of El Paso. Yep. <laughs> Which, uh, yep. I mean, people were bored. Yep. You know, they didn't have TV or the internet. So They were also opportunists. I mean, you know, like, I'm sorry, is, is, has anyone ever turned down the opportunity to quick buck in this country? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think, like, you know, that's just fascinating to me that, you know, regardless of who this guy was or what he did, or even because of those things, it's like people wanted, I mean, sure, if he's been terrorizing your town and now he's dead, it's almost like, can I have proof he's dead? Can I see the body? Um, but yeah, I because of what he did, he doesn't interest me in the same way I think that like people kind of think of as a folk hero. I really liked, uh, this is confusing because they're both John Wesley's. This confused me. So there's John Wesley Hardin, outlaw, and there's John Wesley Carhart, who claimed to have invented the automobile. Now, no one specifically invented the automobile, but I really like him. He's just kind of very weird, nuts in a more fun way. And one of the things it's actually, you have to read my footnote to find out about it. He also wrote one of the first novels um, to address lesbianism in like a positive manner. And he got arrested for sending pornography through the mail, which was like a, a uh, rule back yeah. then. Old offense, and, old offense. Yeah, yeah. So he, he was just kind of fun. So <laughs> when he died, they were saying, you know, oh, he's the, he was the inventor of the automobile, less about his, his writing. But I really, so Mar Matilda Reeves' establishment in San Antonio um, did it and gets the headline of first auto builder dies at San Antonio. So that there was fun. There you go. Notable and then corpse. I had, I had to throw in, just real fast, I had to throw in, even though this is supposed to stop at 1830, when I found out that Cora Gehrig worked at the undertaking establishment that dealt with Clyde Barrow's body in Dallas in uh, 34, I was like, well, I have to just note that. She was working there at the time. And so I'm like, I have to note that <laughs> that one of my ladies, yeah, was there. That's a good inclusion. Yeah, no, that's key. That's arguably one of the absolutely most notable corpses in, in the entire book and in, in the whole period. I mean, that is uh, whew, um, lightning round number two. You have a section on funerary accidents. And this category, to distinguish it slightly from the third category, this category is kind of like when when bad luck comes to find you in the chop shop, right? Um, and I'm thinking there's lots of volatile chemicals around. There's lots of wood-framed buildings. <laughs> um, guess what happens? So, what was your what was your favorite funerary accident that you stumbled across? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I think the one that <laughs> There were a lot. The one that pops out to me definitely is, you mentioned fires, is the one that happened in El Paso. And after San Antonio, El Paso probably had like the most uh, kind of collection of lady undertakers that I found. And so this one happens in 1905, and it affected up to five lady undertakers. Um yeah, this which is, yeah, amazing. But it, it's a fire in El Paso, which at the time, the El Paso Times called the greatest fire in the history of the city. So at the time, I don't know if they've had one worse since then, but it was really bad. Cost an estimated uh, $100,000 in damage in, in their money. And so 
<laughs> what happens is it's doing the opera house. The opera house eventually is going to collapse and that's going to damage one of the uh, Lady Undertaker's funeral homes. But then the fire is getting closer to another Lady Undertaker funeral home. And there are people who are recently dead in that funeral home. <laughs> oh, no. So they're not thinking about like, how do we get you know, our, our expensive things out. They're thinking there are bodies in there that we are in charge of and need to bury, but they have- Free cremation, right? I mean, it saves everybody the time and trouble. Exactly. You'd think that now, then maybe not. But what adds to this for me, it's like, that's bad enough. That's, you know, weird and unfortunate enough. But what adds to this, again, people were bored. Uh, (laughs) There are people standing out in the street, like most of El Paso at this point, standing in the street, watching everything burn. So you can't just go in and take the bodies and like carry them through the front door to try and get them out. You might become one of the bodies (laughs) that then has to be dragged out. Well, and you don't want to traumatize everyone being like, here's a fire and here's some corpses that we've just taken out of the house. So yeah, so they end up trying to like, they take them out the back and around the back street to another um, Undertakers, which at the time had three Lady Undertakers working there. So together we've got five Lady Undertakers who were affected by this. So they get the bodies out of the one that is going to get close to being damaged and get it to one that's in safety while trying to avoid showing the bodies to the crowd and not, you know, get, yeah, injured by the fire in any way. That is legit pretty grisly. Okay, so that's that's kind of amazing. Everybody loves a good public spectacle, and I think you've just, you just upped the ante there. Uh, all right, round three of the lightning round is what I like to call, you had one job, and the sub... <laughs> the sub- Sub- subheading in your book here is uh, sort of like screw ups, right? It's like, like the somebody was either drinking on the job or like you know it wasn't just a bad luck or an accident. It was like someone actually made like a a consequential mistake <laughs> in the line of duty. Um, what what would you say was your favorite case of this particular example? Okay. Oh man, I said it's hard to. It's hard to call it favorite. It was because it is horrible, but it is definitely the one that I kind of, there was the most information on and it's uh, Dora Dobbins. And in this case, the Lady Undertaker was probably directly involved because we're talking about a a girl child, a female child um, that died in uh, around 1927. So Again, based on how women were advertised, uh, she most likely would have embalmed this child. Um, Something went wrong. Lots of things appear to have gone wrong. We don't know kind of what was on purpose or what was just bad or accidental. But basically, uh, this young girl died. She was buried, embalmed, buried by Dora Dobbins and her husband, Clyde. And then the father of the young girl wanted her remains uh, exhumed and removed to another cemetery in a different location. That is not an uncommon thing at this time. As families move, they want to take their loved ones with them. Um, For whatever reason, the Dobbinses refuse to do the exhumation. Um, And there's a whole bunch of legal wrangling over it. Finally, a different undertaker agrees. They do it in the middle of the night, bring the girl's coffin out. And according to the witnesses who were there, again, it was dark. So there's a bit of question. Um, she was in a coffin that was too small and her legs had been broken to get her in it. And she was just in a nightdress instead of the outfit she was supposed to be in. And that it, she didn't appear to have been embalmed, which would indicate that, you know, some putrefication had happened. Um, and this becomes a huge 
huge, like, just legal issue. Um, it was eventually discovered that she had been involved, which uh, Dora would have done, but just not well. So she definitely, yeah, yeah, she screwed up somewhere along the lines. Um, yeah, it was, there's so many, and not just in Texas, there's so many articles on this. It's one of those stories that just kind of has everything to it for newspapers. And so they just pick it up everywhere. These, this, these people's lives were ruined, essentially. I mean, obviously, I feel very, very, very badly for the father of this child as well. But there's a lot of question about like, like, for example, they thought she wasn't involved and she was. But at that time, you can't guarantee that an embalming is going to go well. So was it on purpose? Was it cutting corners? Or was it just unfortunate? Um, yeah, so it, in the end, no uh, legal charges can be brought um, for a variety of reasons. But then the family sues, the father sues. But by then, the Dobbinses have, have gone. Like, they, <laughs> they've cleared out. And they don't even know. Like, the, the uh, articles are like, we think they're in Colorado? Like, they have just picked up and left, which you're like, yeah, you would have to. You wouldn't be able to stay in a place after that. <laughs> right. No, sure. You, at that point, you know, you run yourself out of town. You don't wait on the, on the, uh, the pitchfork-wielding mob, you know, to come and, come and do it for you. Your last uh, section that I want to just ask for lightning round number four, um, you have a section on jokes. You have a section on, on like, bad funerary jokes, which I'm so sorry, but I just could not resist asking you, what is your favorite mortuary? I mean, is it a pun? Is it, like, a, is it an anecdote? I mean, like, you, you got something to choose from, but uh, just, like, we got to go there. We got to. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I have three pages on these in the book because it was just... Not again, these are also from outside of Texas. This I didn't leave, but specifically to Texas. But you get this idea of during this 50 year period, the idea of a lady undertaker, even as people were utilizing their services, was ridiculous. It was an easy way to make a joke or a pun or something. And I hesitate to call them jokes because I mean, at best, they're dad jokes and they're from 100, 150 years ago. There, oh man, century year old, <laughs> like dad jokes. Come on, could there be Let's anything? See, there? And the thing is, they also have themes. So I'm trying to, um, God, and weirdly, a lot of them have like a vaguely or even more than vaguely like sexual undertone to them, which is yeah. so weird. <laughs> like, um, so this is from. Kansas. But again, these would be repeated. So these weren't necessarily made up by a specific newspaper. Um, and it says St. Joe, which is a location in Kansas, has a young lady embalmer, but it doesn't make death any easier for the men who know that a woman will lay them out and squirt embalming fluid into them. <laughs> and that's meant to be a joke. Yes, I'm making a face here. I'm making a face. I don't even know what to say. I'm just making kind of a sad face, which is... Yeah. <laughs> So that one is maybe maybe like the most vividly like that, but yeah, you get you get these, a century ago people yeah. went for that. Yeah. Wow, you get these you get these themed ones of like essentially you get the same joke over and over again of like men will be willing to die or lonely men will be looking to die if they get to be prepared by a lady undertaker and it's just it's a very weird it's a, very, it's a different kind of creepy yeah it's, it's very, very it's like weird. a it's a multiple overlapping kind of creepy which is i guess appropriate 
somewhat plays for us. <laughs> and then, yeah. You know? And then so many of them don't have what we would call a punchline because the punchline to the readers at the time was Lady Undertaker. So it'll just be like, oh, so and so has a Lady Undertaker. That's weird. Kind of that, <laughs> that kind of, t- and that's it. And that's meant to be the joke. It's kind of like predating Seinfeld by 100 years as well, where it's just like that observational humor where the, you know, the situation is the thing and you know it, it like it, it it twists with people's expectations but no it, it these these little moments i mean there's only one way to dig them up right which is to spend all the time in the newspapers in the archives and you know your book is such a uh, a, a real delight you know for a for a macabre topic it, it, it's a real delight to get a window into an ancient practice, a timeless practice, truly, um, in one very specific place that, you know, the stories are so revealing and you really get a sense of what it was like both to live and to die <laughs> in West <laughs> Texas. Right? Um, and, and, you know, I really appreciate your, your giving us that little... Um, you know, portal through which to to travel there. Now, I, I want to return at the very end here to Mrs. Beetham. There's a slight irony, um, and I think it is important to signal this uh, because you mentioned it at the very end of your book, and I thought it was uh, almost poetic in a way, uh, Kathy. There, there's a slight irony in that you write that Anna Mary Beetham, pioneer, entrepreneur, innovator, businesswoman, um, possible back alley brawler, <laughs> you know, we don't really know. But, um, but you know, extremely important figure in in her day and age and who um, did so much for the recognition of women in this profession. She was buried in a grave that has since been lost. And I was curious, how did you determine that, uh, first of all? And... Second of all, uh, how has it felt for you to really to undo that? You know, I mean, her physical grave might be lost, but her story is not lost. And and you have done so much through the research and the writing of this book to ensure that she and others like her will, in fact, continue to be remembered. Thank you. That's yeah, that's important to me. So I'm glad to see (laughs) that that that's recognized. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I went on um, find a grave, obviously, which is the first place you look. And it had no photos or a photo of a bare space or something. I believe there's no photo at all, actually. Uh, She's buried uh, next to her husband. We know that from the records of her like obituary and uh, the articles about her funeral. But yeah, and then when I went up to Mineral Wells, I was like, this, I got to see this for my own eyes. Like, I got to go and make sure that this is true because it just seemed, yeah, I mean, it was, the irony is horrible. But yeah, there it, it appears that no one, she definitely doesn't have a gravestone, neither does her husband. And it appears that there's not any record, at least not that the people I spoke to can find of where she is in the cemetery in Mineral Wells. So yeah. That is that might be the hardest thing to believe in your entire account. It, yeah, I, it was, I can't say that it wasn't a big part of why I went up there because it just, it, yeah, it just seemed ridiculous. It felt, the other thing that, that felt just kind of, uh, crazy was when I, I already knew that I wanted to do up until 1930. Cause after 1930, you get women all over the place. It got, I researched into the 1930s and went, 
okay, I have to stop at 1930. Already the 1920s are giving me tons more women than I expected. After that, women are really in the profession. She dies three days before 1930 ends. And I didn't know that at the time. And I was like, oh, that's that's such a, like, I'm starting with her and then I'm ending with her. That's such a bookend of that 50-year period. And she would have seen all of these changes. Um, when it comes to, like, her memory, I re- it's one of those things where I've looked into how you can get a historical marker placed because there isn't one. There are plenty of historical markers that have to do with historic um, undertaking establishments and funeral homes, and I think she definitely deserves one. And then Betty Lautner um, or Lautner also being there a decade later uh, in Mineral Wells, I think it's an important place to maybe put something to remember these women who were real pioneers in that. So I, it's something that. I definitely will do now that I know how to do it and we'll see what happens. Well, don't forget when you do that, don't forget to uh, just add the magic word coffins, you know, <laughs> coffins for both of them ju- on the awning. I'm just, <laughs> just going to turn in that photo and circle her and be like, good. this is, this is good. her. And she tell yeah. me this woman doesn't deserve a, <laughs> a sign. Just just because of this, going to tell you nothing else about her. Look at her hat. Perfect plan. What could possibly go wrong? That's absolutely... Uh, the way forward. Well, we may not be able for the moment to locate uh, Mrs. Beetham. Um, and if that changes, anybody out there in, in, in podcast land, you know, speak up, please. If you know something, you know, let, let Kathy know. But um, we may not be able to locate Miss Beetham, but we sure can locate you. What is the best way for folks to find uh, your books and, you know, the work that you've done and so forth? Yeah, my books are, if you want all of them in one place, they're on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, you can buy history press books, as I'm sure you mentioned on here before, through the Acadia website. And I do have a, my own personal website. Maybe this will encourage me to actually go update it. <laughs> it's kathybenjamin.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Kathy Benjamin, at least for the present. Blue Sky, Threads, everything, Instagram, everything is a version of my name, K.A. Benjamin 18 or Kathy the Writer. So you can find me kind of everywhere. It's great. Well, we... Sure do appreciate your taking some time for us. I wish you all the best with your future research and may you find many more terrible dad jokes in the archives in in years to come. And we hope that you'll come back and tell us all about them. Until then, thank you so much again for joining us and we will see you soon. Yeah, it was wonderful to do this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Kathy Benjamin, author of Lady Undertakers of Old Texas, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us next week for our next installment of Spooky True Crime. No spoilers here, but this one's a banger. See you then. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen 
wherever you get podcasts.